The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicfliersnz.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, our last speaker today is the Warbird President, uh, Frank Parker. And uh, he's going to uh, talk to us today about his um, Harvard experiences. He led the team for many years here. And of course, he was an instructor in the Air Force, weren't you? You were an instructor? Yep. Uh, and also, um, uh, Frank's going to talk a little bit about the World War I collection here that uh, are behind us, and there's one sitting outside as well. Um, so, I'd like to welcome Frank. And I also want to thank Frank. Thank you very much for hosting us today. Thanks Dave, afternoon everybody. Uh, not sure where to start and what to say, but since it's a Harvard day, I'll give my brief Harvard history. Is uh, just what Gavin was talking about. Of course, I got it on the other side of the uh, ledger where I was a student in the Harvard. My, my first flight in the Harvard, my first experience, I'd been in a Piper Cub prior to this, uh, my first real experience flying was on an ATC flying scholarship on the 13th of January 1969. I've got to say I was very young. <laughs> and Harvard 1091. Uh, and that was with uh, Flight Lieutenant Larry Olson. 
and then uh, that must have sown the seed, so I ended up joining the Air Force on uh, number 170, obviously 1970, Wings Course. And my first solo in Harvard was in 1098, which is uh, still around Ardmore here, owned by Ace Edwards. That was on the 17th of April, 1970. My last Air Force flight in Harvard was on the 18th of March, 1971, in 1099. And that was the end of our Wings course before we went on to do bigger and better things. And then I got back into Harvarding uh, the next flight in Harvard was the 11th of May 1999, so 28 years later, and that was in Harvard 1057, when I did a reefer with Trevor Bland. So that was the start of my Harvard genesis. And I should have left it there, but I didn't. When I joined Air New Zealand in 1986, my instructor on the friendship was one Keith Skilling. And he said, Frank, he said, Frank, have I got a deal for you? We've got a syndicate together, we're going to rebuild this Harvard. And I can tell you, it's going to be ready in 18 months for the next Wanaka. We've priced it out to the last dollar, it's going to be $165,000. And we've got a space for you, my boy. And I'm thinking, well, here's my instructor on the friendship, and uh, this could be a bonus here. Anyway, I joined it. And the deal was I had to come up with, I can't remember how many thousand dollars, and so much per month while the project was going. So remember it was going to be ready in 18 months and $165,000. In reality it took six years and $365,000. <laughs> so the moral of the story is, if you get into a Harvard project, make sure you've got deep pockets. However, that was, uh, that was sort of a watershed for me getting into that aircraft. And it first flew in about 2000, and I was just sort of ticking by, getting a bit of experience up in it. And about 2002, Gavin Drathui came along and tapped me on the shoulder. He says, Frank, have I got a deal for you? <laughs> I'm trying to put together a formation team, and I know that you flew in the, in the Air Force Air Trainer Formation Team, and I've seen you flying at Harvard. I've got just the spot for you. And so it started my... Uh, association, I guess, of the Roaring Forties, which I finally almost got out of last year by handing the, the baton over to Dave Brown. As I was flying around in this, this old Harvard thing, is my, my partner at the time, uh, Liz Needham, and Liz is a pretty well-known aviatrix. She started showing a little bit of interest. And so eventually she agreed to go for a fly with me. I think she said, I'm not going flying that thing with you until you've done 20 hours on it. So I got about 20 hours, came up, says, <laughs> come here, young lady. And off we went flying. Well, that piqued her interest. And within a year or two, she had uh, bought into a Harvard syndicate. Uh, she bought into Harvard 65. And through uh, a number of events, I'm not sure how it happened, but I ended up with Harvard 65, which was a bit of an old dog. And she ended up with Harvard 57, which was Queen of the Fleet. That's the way these things go, isn't it? Getting into the Harvard got me, really uh, opened the gateway for me through uh, a lot of luck, I guess, and being in the right place at the right time into a few other exotic aircraft. And I can't remember the date, but maybe 2005 or so, uh, in fact, it was just after 9-11, whenever that was, and the insurance rates, uh, insurance rates skyrocketed. And Garth Hogan, who had a kitty hawk at the time, was faced with this humongous 
insurance bill. And he thought, crap, I've got to sort this out. So he made it be known that if you didn't, if you met Garth's rather stringent requirements, you might be able to go flying in his kitty hawk. And so I can recall at the uh, Aero Club bar one evening, sidling up to Garth, who I knew slightly, and uh, and I says, uh, Garth, I hear you're interested in letting people fly your kitty hawk. He says, yeah, so what? what? Anyway, after a little bit of discussion, uh, he says, oh, yeah, yeah, um, I'll let me think about it. And a little bit down the track, uh, I got to do a, uh, some flying in his kitty hawk, courtesy of John Lamont. And then I used to be able to fly the Kitty Hawk under special occasions. I mean, Garth was a taskmaster and he had a very nice aircraft, so quite rightly he was. And if I could arrange with Garth and the weather was suitable and everything else, he'd say, uh, yeah, you can, get it, you can take it flying, but let me know when you're finished. And so I'd take it out, da 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 da, and put it back together and polish it. And, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then one day he says, oh, Frank, he says, I've got this guy for a ride. Uh, I'm a bit busy. Can you take this guy for a ride in the Kitty Hawk? So I did that. And then another ride, another ride, and suddenly, instead of me paying Garth two and a half thousand bucks an hour to fly his aeroplane, I could do it for nothing. What a wonderful, what a wonderful situation. And then through Pioneer Restorations, they were doing a Yak 3 rebuild um, on behalf of uh, Ray Hanna. And so I had this aircraft all set to go, and the CAA said it's got to do 10 hours test flying. And the big boys, uh, John Lamont and Co, they were all busy, and John Lamont test flew it, and he says, oh, look, I've got to get back to doing what I'm doing. And so Garth says, oh, can you put a few hours on this thing for me, please? And I said, oh, let me think about this. So we did. And so, suddenly, Frankie gets his backside in the Act 3 to zip around the sky. And, and we had a pretty stringent test fly program to follow, but... Uh, how lucky do you get? And then I guess the big break came when Doug Brooker bought a Spitfire and I was uh, CFI at Warbirds. And Doug says, look, he says, um, how would you feel about flying my Spitfire? <laughs> I had to think about that for a little while. And he, I says, why would you do that? And he said, well, it's reasonable that the CFI Warbirds should be able to fly this aeroplane. And so that happened and then uh, it was subsequently, it's been set up in part 115 flying, which is uh, adventure aviation. So when I can keep Liz out of it, I get to fly a Spitfire on a regular occasion. Another lucky break was uh, when the people down there, Mark, who got a Pop 190 replica down there, and they were looking for somebody to test fly it. And uh, they originally approached John Lamont, and John, fortunately for me, there's a P40C being rebuilt up here. And John said, oh, no, look, I'm busy with this P-40. I might be able to get, that, get back to that thing. And in the interim, uh, they came along to me and said, Frank, how would you like to fly this Fockwell thing? I had to think about that for a little bit as well. And so these things just happened. In the right place, right time, and so on and on it goes. About 1916, I was approached by a gentleman, Mr. Ridgefield. Uh, who had been for a fly in a strike master over the other side of the airfield on an adventure flight. And he, Ridge had always been interested in aeroplanes, but he'd never had anything serious to do with them. And he found Warbirds over here and come and talk to us and got introduced to myself. And Ridge says, you guys need some World War I aeroplanes. And I said, yeah, 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 but you know, they're sort of specialised sorts of things. And he says, look, two years, it's the 100 years of the armistice. You've got to have a World War I aeroplane to fly at that. 
And so we discussed this and discussed this. And the decision, well, no, we ended up deciding, or Red says, I'll tell you what, I'll buy two aircraft if you guys can get together and buy one. And so long story short, we did a... Uh, uh, agreement to purchase from the Vintage Aviator Limited three aircraft. It was going to be a BE2, a Sopwith Pup, which is the one that we were going to buy because it was cheapest, and an Albatross Fighter. And long story short, and beyond the scope of this uh, audience, is we ended up getting the BE2 in the corner, which I'll talk about shortly, and then, uh, shall I call it, internal uh, discord in the Vintage Aviator Limited, the, the other two aircraft were ready to be, they were test flying, ready to pick up, but were never delivered. And so it was a, a little bit unfortunate, we could say. After the uh, PUP and Albatross, we couldn't take delivery of them. Is, uh, I was in discussion with some uh, gentleman in Florida, and he had a uh, replica Fokker triplane and a replica uh, SOP of camel for sale. And that was going down the line, and then it sort of fell off the rails as well. Uh, and about that time, as Graham Wolf, and I'm sure some of you know, at uh, Classic Sales, Classic Fighters, Classic Everything Else, No Marker, he approached me and says, uh, I hear you guys are looking for a Fokker triplane. I says, well, yeah, we, we are indeed, but um, we were chasing one and it's fallen over. He said, oh, well, I've got one for sale. And so the little black aeroplane arrived. So now we had two, a goodie and a baddie. And then shortly after, well, months after actually, uh, Graham came to me and he says, uh, look, he says, I understand that the, the T-Val stuff's gone down to Googler, so maybe we can help you with a Bristol fighter. I says, what? He says, a Bristol fighter, he says, a very unrepresented aircraft. And so, sorry, not Bristol fighter, Bristol scout, Bristol scout. So then we ended up with a little yellow jobby just uh, at the back there. And I'll talk about this a little bit further as, as well. And then down track, somewhat, Graham came back and he says, I've got just what you need. It's a Seaman Schuchert. I said, a what? And so, long story short, we ended up with this one over here. And so we've actually done pretty well out of all this. And what I said is this gentleman, Reg, is, he's basically funded all these aircraft for us. And his deal is he will provide the aircraft and it's up to these own warbirds to make them work. And then the final one came along is uh, one of our members came to me and says, have you seen this? And it was this picture of this thing called an albatross that had been built in Canada. And he says it's for sale. And I had a look at the sale prices now, forget it. Anyway, I contacted the gentleman who uh, was selling it, and that's it now sitting back there. So that's how New Zealand Warbirds came by our World War I collection. I'll just talk about each aircraft as we go. Uh, you can turn, probably stand up, turn around, or whatever you like. In the back is the BE2. The BE stands for, most of what I'm telling you is what I've read, and um, uh, that Wikipedia is a wonderful thing. So if there's any errors in it, it's Wikipedia, not me. BE2 stands for uh, Blerio Experimental. Uh, all that means is that the propeller's at the front, not at the back, because Blerio put his propellers at the front of his aeroplane, when a lot of other people wanted to put the propellers at the back. Maybe they were thinking of jet propulsion. I don't know. The BE-2 is one of the first aircraft that the military got. And I see it as it's an aeroplane that was designed and built for the military 
when the military didn't really know what they wanted airplanes for. And so it was designed as an observation platform, and that's what it does. It was served throughout World War I. It was the first airplanes that the Brits sent to Europe in World War I. And they obviously used it for observation. Obviously, if you can fly around and look over the fence and see what the other guys are up to, you sort of got a little bit of a yardstick on them. It hadn't been there a long time when the other guys came up with these little single-seater things and started shooting them down. And they were losing so many BE-2s that it became cause for concern in the House of Commons. And so they had to withdraw them out of the front line. Nonetheless, they continued throughout the war. Uh, they were used in uh, Blighty for coastal surveillance by the Royal Naval Air Service. They were used to shoot down Zeppelins at night time. And the guy on the back wall, uh, the Bath Brandon, is a Kiwi, uh, who shot down a Zeppelin over London from 10,000 feet. Now, uh, the fact that they could send a BE-2 up and shoot down or, or actually bombed them with little bomblet things, Zeppelins, stop, stop the Germans from bombing London during World War I. Because the Zeppelins are a huge capital expense. It was a, probably the cost of a battleship. And these things would get knocked down out of the sky. Well, it just wasn't cricket, was it? The Australians operated Bristol Scouts and BE-2s in Palestine. And the BE-2 is recorded as probably doing the first ever casualty evacuation where it picked up a chap from the side of the road in Palestine, uh, he'd been shot up or whatever, and flew him back to hospital. So it's a very important aeroplane. Coming forward to the Bristol Scout, it was designed about the same time, around 1912-1913. The Scout was designed for a race around England, or not around England, but a race in England. And with good British weather, on the day of the race, <laughs> it was rubbish, so it didn't take part. <laughs> However, the military got hold of them, and it was one of the first single-seaters that the military got involved with. Uh, this one is unarmed, but uh, back in the day, is the pilots would put a Lewis gun, uh, either pointing out the side, so Mr. Propeller, across the top of the wing, so Mr. Propeller, or in fact they put them power rail to the fuselage and shot through the propeller without interrupting gear. And they figured that they could shoot two magazines through their Lewis gun without doing irreparable damage to the propeller. I should have mentioned the B-2 is uh, the other famous thing about the aeroplane is the first VC in the air was run by a guy flying a B-2. It's a guy with um, a, a New Zealand connection and that his forefathers were early settlers in Wellington and Canterbury and uh, his mother was uh, part Maori lady. Long story. But he was brought up in England and he learned to fly himself prior to war, joined the Royal Flying Corps and was flying BE-2s. The Germans were on advance and they wanted to bomb a railway yard to try and slow them down. So he was set out in his BE-2 with a handful of bombs to bomb the railway yard, which he did. And he went in reasonably low level so he could hit the target and was shot up quite badly by ground fire. And unfortunately he staggered back to his airfield but died the next day. So it was the first VC-1 in the air. The second VC-1 in the air was a guy flying a Bristol Scout. Well, in fact, the, the, the first VC 
and a single-seater single aeroplane was a guy flying a Bristol Scout. It was Lano Hawker. And he uh, got involved in an engagement with uh, some German aircraft. He shot down three of them and chased two more away. And for that was uh, awarded the VC. Unfortunately, he also became Red Baron's 11th victim. <laughs> so, um, the Scout was replaced really by the Sopwith Pup in about 1917. So it saw early service and then was withdrawn as a training type aircraft. It was flown by uh, many notable World War I pilots. Albert Ball, uh, who was one of the celebrated British aces, he had his own personal scout at his squadron uh, and various others. So, this one here, it's, um, it's a re replica. The B-2 we call a reproduction. It's built by the Vintage Aviator Limited. Totally, totally accurate. Everything about it is so accurate that it could have rolled off the production line 100 years ago. The scout looks the part, but it's actually built with a few modern, slightly modern things about it. So it's not a reproduction, it's a replica, but it's a very accurate one. The engine in it is an original um, rotary engine, and it's stamped 1919, and it still goes beautifully. That's the little scout. The black one in the back, Fokker triplane. Courtesy of the Snoopy comics, most people think that the only aeroplanes the Germans flew in World War I were Fokker triplanes. But in fact, it was not a very successful aeroplane. It was a copy from the Sopwith triplane. The Germans saw it and said, oh, that's pretty good and it does pretty well. We better have some of those. So they knocked it up. It had teething problems in that the wings fell off, <laughs> which is sort of terminal. It only saw about seven months frontline surface, and they only built 700 of them. So, although we have this aura of the Fokker triplane being the aeroplane, it's actually just one of the aeroplanes. Next around, the Albatross was one of the aeroplanes. The Albatross was produced right through World War I. Uh, started off with a Mark I or a D1 and moved the way through a D5A, which is what this one is. And so as they, things uh, improved, engines improved and ideas improved, they so modified the aircraft and, and modernised them. One of the problems of the D5 is in a bid to make it go faster, they wanted to put a smaller wing on the bottom. So they went from a twin spar wing to a single spar wing. And these things started falling out of the sky unexplained. And it wasn't until one of the pilots came back and described how the wing started fluttering quite badly <laughs> that the aerodynamicists discovered aerodynamic flutter. And what was happening is the, they'd get into going too fast, the wings would start to flex and flutter and fall off. And once again, that was most unhealthy. So the little struts at the front of the uh, interplane, interwing struts there, was put on it to try and stop that happening. The early Albatross had 140 horsepower and it had a big uh, straight six-cylinder Mercedes diesel in it, or, sorry, not the Mercedes engine in it. The later ones, they were getting up to 180 horsepower, so over the period of the development, they went from 140 to 180 horsepower, which is quite an increase. The Germans built 2,700 plus of them, so it was one of the main aircraft that the Germans had in World War I. Now across to the beauty in the corner. It's a Siemens Schuchert, or 
it was built by a, a company called Siemens Schuchert Werk. So it's basically SSW. The genesis of this, the SSW was in 1917, the French had the Newport 17, which was a very successful aeroplane. And the German uh, said, we need some of those. So they captured one and gave it to Mr. Sieben and says, build some of these, will you? And so they did. They built the SSD-1. And by the time it reached the front line, it was sort of uh, superseded. It had become not so good. And so they developed and developed and developed it. And this is the last development that they did, it was, uh, which is a D4. They only got to the front line in mid-1918, and they only ever built about 200 of them. The SSWD3, they built a, a lot of, and it's quite well known. But this one is pretty much unknown. The Allies got hold of it after the war and flew it, and they were staggered by its performance. It had a contra-rotating rotary engine in it. Anybody know what a rotary engine is? Anybody don't know what a rotary engine is? <laughs> a rotary engine is, it's a, uh, I'm not sure how it ever developed, but the crankshaft is fixed to the aeroplane and the whole engine on the propeller turns around. So the whole engine is rotating, I'll show you in a tick. They did this for various reasons. They had the idea that it would aid cooling for the engine. They had the idea that the uh, engine would act as a flywheel and therefore give a nice, much smoother power. It had a few drawbacks. One of them was the induction system, which has to come in through a hollow crankshaft through the crankcase and out to the, uh, out to the cylinders. It had uh, an oil system, which is a total loss, because they pump oil into the main bearings and what have you, and then it's got nowhere to go, except it finds its way outside the exhaust pipe, or the exhaust, uh, out, the exhaust holes as it is. And so you go flying in that thing for 20 minutes, and it's got about two litres of oil to wipe off it, because that's where the oil goes. The engines were developed significantly during World War One, and they ended up uh, getting maximum power of about 220 horsepower out of them, and then they'd reached their limit. One of the problems is because of the induction system, you just can't get air into it. And so the more power you try and get out of it, it just be, it loses what we call volumetric efficiency, and so that's it. At the end of the World War One was the end of the rotary engine, and somebody put their head together and put why don't we fix the engine and turn the crankshaft? Which gets us to the airplane in the back, which is one of the very early development radial engines. That's a polycarp of PO2. It's an, uh, it's an actual uh, genuine aircraft, which I think came from Ukraine. The Russians designed that in, about, in the 1920s as a training aeroplane. So we had the Tiger Moth, and they went twice as big and built the PO2. It was built to replace, the, at that time, the Russians for their training aircraft had uh, DH-104s, no, what's, what's the 104? Um, old rotary engine things, anyway. And so it was quite a step forward for them. It comes along the great patriotic war, and they found a few other uses for it. They uh, obviously used it for training. They used it for liaison, flying around the battlefield. They used it at night time for bombing over the German lines, and if anybody's interested, Google Night Witches, which was a, uh, a group or a squadron or a unit 
of Russian women who flew exclusively those aeroplanes, and they went out at night time over the German lines, dropping bombs over the side. They didn't do much damage, but they kept the Germans awake and really pissed them off, so <laughs> it was quite effective. They used them for air ambulance. They put a sort of a hatchback on the back, and they could fit three Ivans down the back to fly them back to hospital. Uh, Post-war, they used them for everything, for agriculture, and I think they were in production until the 1950s. The amazing thing is the Russians and their allies built over 30,000 of them, which is amazing. The most built aeroplane is a toss-up between the Russian Stormovik and the Messerschmitt 109. They talk about 36,000 of those. So to build 30,000 of those aeroplanes is, I think, quite amazing. So that's the Warbirds World War I and other collection. And since one thing's Harvard, I should talk about our little, treat, uh, our little trophy in the corner here. I'm sure most of you have heard of John Smith uh, of Mapua, who recently passed away. John Smith was an avid aviation collector, and uh, Warbirds were invited by the people who were sorting out his stuff, shall I say, to come and collect a whole bunch of Harvard stuff. And amongst it was this aeroplane here, which is quite historic. It's Harvard 909, which is the first group of Harvard aircraft that were delivered to the Air Force. And so I guess it's 901 that flew 80 years ago, is it? So it's 909. I think there was 10 of them. There's that one and possibly the bones of one other remain. Yeah, so there's about three or four of them were written off during World War II when they were training. Uh, the, what was left, I think, went to Tikawiti and got broken up there. And so there's this one here. Now, unbelievably, and I told you the little story about Harvard 57 and what a wonderful opportunity it was to get involved in, we're talking about rebuilding that. But what we're talking to is the people at Tauranga, at uh, Classic Flyers, have done a number of rebuilding projects on Avengers and all sorts of stuff. And they think they're now up to the task of rebuilding uh, Flying Harvard. They've got a great bunch of people there who can do all... I mean, it's really just drilling rivets out and putting them back in, isn't it? Can't be that hard. <laughs> but they've got a bunch of people who they think have up to the job. They've got a couple of engineers, licensed engineers, who are willing to oversee it. And our plan is to get together with them. They've got a trust down there. I think it's the Bay of Plenty Historic Aircraft Trust or something of that kin. We've got a trust up here, which is New Zealand Aviation Heritage Trust. And the end product will be jointly owned by these two trusts. And the aircraft will be shared between Tauranga and here. That's our vision. We've got what we see there. We've got the bones of another Harvard, which is a Harvard 1100, which has been partially rebuilt in bits and pieces and we've got lots of other stuff. And so hopefully, uh, the guys in Tauranga are putting three years on it, I think I'll be lucky to fly it, but hopefully we'll get that aeroplane flying again, and if we can achieve that, it's going to be a rather historic aeroplane. We'll be asking for donations as well. <laughs> That's all for me, folks. Any questions? about the same era, why some go clockwise and others chose to go the other way. So the propeller rotation. So the question is why do some propellers go one way and why do some go the other way? Uh, uh, they were looking over each other's plans all the time. Why did some go the other way? 
because they can, I guess, is the true answer. I, I've got no idea. But uh, it's a... Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a helicopter person as well. <laughs> and they do the same thing. The Americans go this way and everybody else goes that way. Mm. And I, I guess the, 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 there's no good reason for it. And you know, it, it's interesting, Spitfire, the Merlin Spitfire goes one way and the Griffin Spitfire goes the other way. Why? Have you got a good reason for it, Bill? Uh, just, uh, just the way it is. Yeah. So, any other questions? Sorry, the two Ryans. Oh, two Ryans. Uh, where are the two Ryans? So, we've got two Ryans in the association. One's a Ryan STM, which is actually owned by Motat. Um, and it's been with Warbirds through an agreement with MOTAP for many, many years. But the two, both of them are just down the hangar down the road because we had to make some room in here. But both, well, the STM has been out of the air for some time. Is the original Monasco engine in it um, went poof many years ago, and so it was replaced with a, a LOM engine from Czechoslovakia. And unfortunately the, unfortunately, the LOM engine had a problem as well. And we're just, getting, just about to get it running again. Uh, it, it, for the technically minded, there's a little plug at the end of the gudgeon pin which came out and it scored a bore and created metal and blah 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 blah. And we had trouble getting spare parts for it. We've, first of all, we had trouble finding anybody who knew anything about it and getting spare parts. And the spare parts had to come from somewhere east of Poland. And then COVID came along and then they got lost. So we've spent the last 18 months trying to find a new piston and a new cylinder barrel. That's all happened. Uh, the other one, the PT-22, which is uh, the little training version, is, yeah, it's just down the road there. They, they both fall, yeah, both fly, yeah. That's what we, we like to think is unique about warbirds. We've got two airplanes that don't fly, and it's a Skyhawk and a Mackie. <laughs> Anything else? Are you looking at getting any more World War One stuff? Will you keep adding to the collection of World War <laughs> Well, we add to the collection of World War One. Uh, the hangar's pretty full, Dave. <laughs> and, and the problem with these airplanes is they cost us a lot of money. Is uh, all the airplanes in the hangar here uh, pay round figure six hundred dollars a month hangarage. And it's easy when you've got an aeroplane that's syndicated because you've got 20 people to cough up with 30 bucks each a month and that's no problem. Whereas these, there's nothing to support them. Uh, they cost us insurance of, I think it's about 30 grand a year. So our, our lovely collection of World One aeroplanes plus maintenance, they cost somebody in the region of $80,000 a year. So we've got to be circumspect about it. I would like another three hangers down here, but it's not going to happen this week. Yeah. It, it depends. It, it depends which owner is the closest. <laughs> um, let me see. Let me see. Uh, the, the World War One stuff is is. Uh, I mean, it's it's the beginning of aviation, and the B two. You, you fly the B-2, it's underpowered, it's, it looks like a butterfly and it flies like a butterfly. It's got ailerons but they're for decoration because they hadn't figured out aileron drag at that stage. So you put some aileron on, you go to bank left and it turns right. So you, it's like a tiger mop if you're flying a tiger mop. Is you basically 
steer with your rudders and balance of the ailerons. It's got 90 horsepower. Look at the drag coefficient. So, I mean, it's a delightful little thing to fly, but it really only just flies. The Sukhurt, it goes like a startled rabbit. 40 seconds from start of a takeoff roll to 1,000 feet. That's pretty amazing. And uh, it makes it, it's nice short wings, just compared to wings on that compared to the other aircraft. It's got great roll authority. It's a little bit pitchy because it's a bit short, but it really does perform. But it first flew in 1980, I think, in the States when it was built. And I've got pictures of the first test pilot looping it and rolling it. And of all these airplanes, it's the only one which, if you were stupid, you'd try to loop and roll. <laughs> Probably this group, the Scout, is my favourite. It's, it's light. It's, it's, um, it's just light as a feather on controls. It performs quite nicely. It doesn't appear to have any vices. It flies like an aeroplane. Does it answer the question? <laughs> any others? Yes? Question is the Spitfire the nicest aeroplane that's ever built? Only if you're British. <laughs> so I guess a little bit exotic stuff that I fly is I'm most at home in the Kitty Hawk because I fly in the Kitty Hawk the most. And I find the, I, I liken the Kitty Hawk to a big Harvard, which is appropriate for today. It's about one and a half times the weight, one and a half times the power, and about one and a half times the performance. And the ergonomics are very similar. The, hat, the control feel is very similar. And it flies like an aeroplane should. The Spitfire is quintessentially British. If you look in the cockpit, it's... We've got a gauge, where will it go? Uh, there. The boost gauge, for example, one of the most important gauges in the cockpit is the smallest. And it's stuck over in the corner where you... Um, the control harmony is, is not very good. It's quite heavy on the ailerons and absolutely finger light on the, on the elevators. Normally we like nice light ailerons and a little bit of feel in the elevator. So, however, it's a Spitfire. If you really want to get honest, you get in the Mustang, and uh, I remember writing a story once about Mustangs. There's a reason why Mustang pilots have a bit of a smile on their face. <laughs> it is just everything is perfect about it. Its ergonomics are good, its feel is good, its performance is good, and it's easy to land. What more do you want? Hot name is the Fockwolf. It's a <laughs> So I liken the, the Kitty Hawk as a sports car, the Spitfire is a British sports car, and the Focke-Wolf is a rally car. It rattles and bangs and clatters and it's bloody awful. <laughs> the others? Well, thank you. I uh, hope the day's been a good day for you. I hope you've enjoyed yourselves, and uh, thanks for coming to New Zealand Warbirds. Thank you, Frank. Thank you very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.